Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 16th of July 2018 and this is episode number 72. On today's programme, I talked to Dr Oliver Wilkinson, postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Wolverhampton, about his new book. It is titled British Prisoners of War in First World War Germany and it is published by Cambridge University Press. I spoke to Oliver over the marvels of internet telegraphy from his home in the Dales. Hi Oliver, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Well, hi Tom. Uh, First of all, can I just thank you very much for inviting me to take part in today's podcast. I'm currently a postdoctoral research fellow in history, politics and war studies at the University of Wolverhampton. And there I'm responsible for coordinating a number of First World War commemorative events um, that the university are running. And I'm also working on a number of First World War related projects. So my own research, for example, is currently looking at war captivity. Um, I'm looking at inter-allied experiences and inter-allied relationships during the First World War. Um, And I'm currently looking at veterans after the war. But really, my interest in the conflict came from a family uh, family um, interest. First, through my father, because my father's always been very interested in the First World War, and he used to take us on uh, on trips to the battlefields in France and Belgium, which was a real hook for my own interest. And then from there, and I'm sure this is is a common story for many of your listeners. Um, I I started to try and find out more about my ancestors who'd been in the First World War. And for me, this focused on my great-grandfather, William Wilkinson, or Willie Wilk, as he was known. And as I dug into his experience, I found out that Willie Wilk had actually been captured. He was caught on the 27th of May in 1918. And therefore, his war experience was a prisoner of war experience. And it was really finding out more about that that really captivated my interest and it has done ever since. So briefly what is your new book obviously published by Cambridge University Press all about? Um, Well it is about British prisoners of war in the hands of the Germans during the First World War. In the book um, I've tried to give a comprehensive overview of the experiences of the captive. So I take the reader through the sort of key moments in the captive's journey um, from capture itself through to life in the camps and then to um, repatriation. But to try and bring this story alive, I very much wanted to focus on the experiences of the men themselves, the men who had experienced captivity. And I wanted to delve into how they felt about being prisoners of war and how they coped with that experience. So basically, the book thinks about the challenges that these men faced because of captivity, and that embraces things like physical challenges through poor diets, through physical confinement, through sometimes harsh conditions and so on, to psychological challenges, dealing with issues such as military and cultural stigmas surrounding capture 
as well as the, the psychological anguish of life in a camp. And then the flip side of this is that the book also offers insight into the coping strategies that were displayed by British prisoners. So in other words, how they responded to these challenges. So why did you think a book was necessary on prisoners or British prisoners in Germany? Well, the main reason was that when I started researching captivity in the Great War, inspired, as I said, by trying to find out more about my great-grandfather, is that I was staggered by the limited amount of material that existed on the topic. Certainly seemed very limited in relation to the massive amount of material that's been written about the First World War. And as well as that, when I started to dig deeper into captivity, it started to reveal to me a story that was very different to what I thought I knew about the First World War. So it therefore felt that this was a history that perhaps perhaps offered to reveal something new about the First World War and change understandings. So, you know, I'd found this, this gap that I felt needed to be fulfilled. I felt as though I had a certain personal responsibility to fill it by telling the experiences of men like my great-grandfather to put their stories on record. Um, and actually, I also felt that by writing it, um, I may be able to have some small impact on the way the First World War is understood. So how many British servicemen were held captive by the Germans during the Great War? Well, in terms of British servicemen in Germany, we're looking at around 185,000 men. And that breaks down into just under 8,000 captured British officers and just over 177,000 captured British other ranks. However, it is important to remember that Germany also held captives of other nationalities as well. So there were Russian prisoners, for example, and these were the largest numbers of prisoners in Germany during the war. There's 1.5 million Russian prisoners. And then there's French prisoners, Belgian prisoners, and so on. So in total, there was actually around 2.5 million prisoners of war in Germany during the First World War. And as I say, the British formed around 185,000 of that number. Now, what were conditions like in German POW camps? Now, I think probably a common popular reference for many people, and certainly my childhood, were Second World War films like uh, Escape from Colditz and The Great Escape. Were the Second World War camps very similar to the First World War camps? Well, they were in, in some degrees in terms of the camps in Germany. One of the things is that conditions within these camps vary quite considerably based on a number of elements. And two things that have a massive impact on conditions are the rank of the, capti uh, of the captive and the location of their incarceration. So rank is important because the Germans separate officers from other ranks and they house officers and other ranks in different categories of camps where they're subjected to different treatment. Um, so for officers, for example, who are housed in camps in Germany, conditions on the whole are pretty good. Officers generally tend to be housed in quite good accommodation. Um, they'd be in buildings such as old hotels or old factories or military citadels that get repurposed as prisoner of war camps. And then they normally only live limited um, amount of 
prisoners in each room, so overcrowding isn't a big issue, and they have certain privileges in the camps. So, for example, officer prisoners were actually given orderlies who were drawn from the other rank cachet of prisoners, and these orderlies would do the camp chores. They would wash and clean and cook for the officers. So generally, officers had quite good conditions. Other ranks, by contrast, when they were housed in main prisoner of war camps in Germany, they tended to live in very large camps. They would be camps that could contain up to um, tens of thousands of prisoners. They tended to live in large huts within these camps, and conditions tended to be very crowded. These men would often sleep in bunk beds, sometimes triple-tiered bunk beds, and obviously there would be a strain on things like sanitation, and they'd live in close and cramped conditions. And as a result of that, we do see some major health epidemics in some of these other ranked prisoner of war camps. In 1915, for example, there's some large outbreaks of typhus in some of the camps. The other thing about other ranks is that under the terms of international law, they could be used as a labor resource as captive. So what you also see is the development of thousands of working camps across Germany in which other ranks are placed. And again, conditions within these camps vary hugely depending on what job you're given to do and what were, uh, and where you're actually sent. So just to give you a couple of examples, you might be a prisoner of war who's sent to work on a farm. And if you're sent to work on a farm, generally you'd get quite good conditions because you would live with the farmer at the farm. You'd often eat the same food that the farmer had and you'd be working outside in the open air. So you'd have at least a, a sense of freedom. Meanwhile, you might be a prisoner who's sent to work at a minehead, at a salt or a coal mine. And there you would face very difficult conditions. You'd live in very overcrowded conditions. You'd face very hard and dangerous work, often being kept underground um, in the mine for maybe 12 hours a day. The other determinant that impacted on your conditions was actually the location of your captivity, because you might not actually be sent back to a camp in interior Germany. And many able-bodied prisoners, particularly prisoners who were captured in 1918, were actually kept behind the lines in France and Belgium, where they were used as a labor resource by the Germans. So if you were there, you would be put to work near the front line, so you would face considerable dangers. You know, you would face the danger of your own artillery fire that, that could uh, kill you, and you'd have to undertake very exhausting labor routines, and effectively, you'd be living rough during these times. You know, you'd be housed in the open, maybe in a wired coop, on which you'd be given very limited food um, and face these harsh labor demands. So as I say, conditions varied considerably. If you were an officer and you were in a camp within interior Germany, you'd have generally fairly good conditions. But then by contrast, if you're another rank who's captured in 1918 and kept behind the line, you'd face undoubtedly very bad conditions. And many of these prisoners suffered a great deal as a result. So how did the German authorities control their captors? What type of techniques did they use to maintain security in the camp? Well, actually, there's, there's quite a number of ways in which they did this. On one level, the design of a camp itself could be used for control. In those large purpose-built or the rank camps, for example, the camp would be designed 
in such a way in which the thousands of prisoners would be divided up into manageable units and they'd be housed within specific compounds and then within specific rooms and barracks within that compound. And then what you could do is you could exert surveillance over these spaces and you could restrict and regulate movement between each compound and so on. In addition, the Germans also imposed military-style routines and regimes with the aim of discipline in mind. And these would often have inbuilt security procedures. Probably the best example is the roll call procedure that takes place in many of the camps. So this tended to be a mass parade that would be held one or, or two times a day in which the prisoners would be paraded and counted to make sure that they were all there. Obviously, the Germans also had recourse to punishments in order to try and enforce discipline in the camps. And we see things like solitary confinement being used to discipline prisoners. In the other rank camps, they might also face corporal punishments. In extreme cases, um, capital punishments are also given out to some British prisoners, although these tended to get commuted. And so there's this, this, this system of punishment that could be used. The flip side of that, that I would also just mention, is that there were also more subtle techniques that the Germans could use to maintain control. And you see on an individual camp basis that the German camps, camp commandants and the guards would often make concessions to prisoners and they would often negotiate through, say, the senior British officer or the senior British non-commissioned officer within a camp for those to keep their subordinates in good order so they, they, would, they would negotiate with them. And in some camps, the German commandant felt that contentment could be used to facilitate control. So what they would do is facilitate every, uh, everything they could so that prisoners could set up, say, leisure activities or pastimes so that their time would be occupied and they would be relatively content and that would feed into better control in the camps. So how did men react to their time in captivity? Well, you see a range of reactions to war captivity from British prisoners. And it really varied on an individual basis. It depended who the individual prisoner was on his pre-captive experiences, on his pre-capture war experiences, on how he viewed his own position in the war and upon the precise conditions he faced in the camps. We do see some very extreme reactions to captivity, which indicate that some men simply couldn't cope with the experience. And we see things like attempts at suicide, for example. There's one particularly horrific example of a British officer captive who attempts to cut his own throat in, cap in captivity. And then this feeds into other extreme examples, such as mental breakdown, in which they'd, they'd sort of withdraw. You know, they'd often become mute and they'd spend all their days in their bed or something like that. And while those mental reactions are quite extreme, they are indicative of a general reaction to, captiv to captivity that was diagnosed at the time as barbed wire disease. What barbed wire disease was, it was, a, it was a condition that was identified by a Swiss physician called Dr. Weischer. It was actually identified during the First World War. And it was a mental um, 
strain and mental condition that was directly attributed to the physical and psychological trials of being a prisoner. This condition would be manifest in prisoners by things such as extreme mood swings in the camp. There'd be episodes of extreme irritability um, exhibited by prisoners and then periods of perhaps depression. Um, one captive describes it as a, as a green mould that used to overtake him at certain times in the camps. The other thing is that we see strong reactions to captivity exhibited by specific cohorts of prisoners. So we see reactions of shame and feelings of dishonour, for example, that are exhibited by especially British officers who are caught and by regular soldiers who'd been caught, for pre-war regular soldiers. And this really was because these men had internalised very strong military and cultural expectations about what was expected of them in the First World War. And captivity didn't fit with those expectations and there was a certain stigma attached to it as they perceived it. Now, a common theme of lots of British Second World War films uh, uh, looking at prisoners in, in, in German camps is how they resist their captors. How did British POWs in the First World War resist their captors? Well, I'm, I'm very glad you've mentioned this, Tom. Exactly as you imply, many people associate the prisoner of war with resistance because they see the prisoner of war as synonymous with escape. And as you suggest, this is very often informed by cultural representations um, that we see in film and TV after the Second World War. Certainly, some British servicemen who were captured by the Germans during the First World War do adopt this line, and you can find plenty of evidence of escapes. You can find some really good escape stories. Many of these are, are published in interwar memoirs, particularly in officer memoirs, and they contain all, all manner of accounts of daring do of escape from the camps. We also see in the First World War a mass breakout um, attempt. So the First World War has its own great escape, if you like, and this took place from the camp at Holtzminden. Um, this was an officer's camp, and the breakout took place on the 23rd of June 1918, when 29 British officers escaped from the camp via a tunnel. Now, 10 of those officers made what we call home runs, and that means that they succeeded in, in getting clean out of Germany. They got back to neutral territories and then back to Britain. So actually, on that score, this was quite a successful escape. It's certainly far more successful than the, um, the World War II escape on which the Great Escape film is based. However, while we can cite these quite exciting examples, it must be recognised that escape was very much a minority response amongst British prisoners. In actual fact, less than 1% of all British servicemen who were captured by the Germans during the First World War escaped. So less than 1%. So we're talking about less than 2,000 of all the prisoners who were caught. However, resistance could also be used in more subtle ways inside the camp. Resistance didn't have to mean escape. And what you can actually identify is a spectrum of resistances that are used by captured men in response to their captivity. These range from very blatant resistances, um, such as escape and such as sabotage, through to 
direct refusals to obey German orders, right to the other end of the spectrum, where you've got more petty resistances or petty infractions or almost pranks. Um, a good example of this is the pranks and the teasing of the Germans that some um, British prisoners adopted in the camp. Um, and these were designed to give these prisoners a feeling of one-upmanship and therefore to give them feelings of re-empowerment within the camps. The other thing about resistance is that you also see it being used in very practical ways as a means to protest in the camps. So, for example, British prisoners who were made to work for the Germans could and did resist when they felt that the jobs they were given were too hard or that the working hours were too long or that the conditions were too poor. Um, so effectively, some prisoners could resist by going on strike and, and some British prisoners in Germany did. So I would, I would say that resistance is routinely used by British prisoners as a coping mechanism, but it's not just via escape. It's via this spectrum of different resistances that were adopted by prisoners of war. And what impact did imprisonment have on, on British prisoners in terms of their friendships, social relationships and general cohesion of British combatants uh, behind the barbed wire? Well, in the main, it had a really positive effect and you see very strong group cohesion in the camps and on a more fundamental level, very strong friendships being made between captured men. I, I should include the caveat that of course, there were some feuding in the camps. There were some fractures and falling outs that we see amongst prisoners. But really, you'd expect that um, in a context where men are forced to live together, um, often in very close proximity and with little privacy. You know, people would get on each other's nerves from time to time. But despite this, friendship and social cohesion appears to be one of the main coping strategies amongst British prisoners of war. One former NCO prisoner, in fact, said that helping each other was one of the great unwritten laws of captivity. We see this collective ethic working on a number of levels in the camp. So sometimes on camp level, you see the whole camp thinking about it him, themselves as communities in which prisoners see themselves almost as citizens to this community with obligations to one another. You also see strong subgroups formed in the camps around certain activities. So, for example, in some of the camps, theatres are set up by the prisoners to, to perform theatre shows. And you'd get theatre troops in which a number of prisoners, budding, budding actors and playwrights, would form together in a, in a social group based on that activity. You see the same in terms of sports teams and things like this. And then, of course, on a fundamental level, you get groups of friends or, or pairs who stick together in captivity. And very often, friends or groups of, of, of mates would pool their food together. They'd pool their resources together and they'd share them with each other. So they'd share their food, um, they'd share cigarettes, they'd share combs and razors, and they'd look after each other. You know, they'd cut, their, they'd cut each other's hair, or they'd look after each other if they fell sick. And actually, because they were brothers in misfortune, if you like, they were sharing the same experience, that tended to act 
as a as a glue for social cohesion. And many prisoners subsequently after the war in the interwar period would comment on friendships being one of the high points of their entire captivity experiences. And did any prisoners actually cooperate with the Germans uh, in terms of collaboration? I'm thinking about um, some of the attempts that the Germans made to recruit um, Irishmen into Irish uh, units under German sponsorship in response to the Easter Rising in April 1916. There are attempts made by the Germans to single out Irish prisoners and convert them, if you like, to the German cause. Um, and, a, and a camp set up at Limburg to facilitate this, in which those prisoners are given better treatment. The idea was to raise an Irish brigade, but really that failed. Whilst there were some who joined this brigade, many of those Irish prisoners said that they did it as a sort of double bluff with, uh, with, the, with the Germans, and there was never any, any real collaboration taking place. Uh, on a more mundane level, in, in the general camp population. You do get British prisoners working with the Germans, but it, it tends to be more in a structured way in terms of, you know, prisoner leaders like senior British officers or senior British non-commissioned officers working with the German authorities within a, a particular camp and really working for the good of the camp rather than collaborating with the Germans. And there's, there's very few examples of prisoners sort of changing allegiance and becoming pro-German in that sense. And did the Germans actually attempt any sort of wide-scale intelligence gathering as British authorities did in the Second World War uh, from, their, from their prisoner populations? Initially, when a man is, is caught, especially if it was a man of value, like an officer, they, they could be subjected to interrogation and with Germans trying to find out intelligence from them. In general terms, prisoners tended to, to lie in such interrogations and try and mislead the Germans. But, but also, it's interesting that many prisoners who found themselves being interrogated were staggered by how much the Germans already knew, and therefore they didn't have much intelligence to give. But even in those cases, they tried to, tried to bluff them. And I have come across an example, um, which I, I think relates to a camp at Karlsruhe, in which um, prisoners might be put into a room in which there were microphones, and therefore they put prisoners together and they'd listen to what they were talking about, trying to gain intelligence. But I think these are more isolated incidents and really targeted at um, officers or, or perhaps flyers, uh, you know, pilots who, who might hold certain information. It certainly isn't a, 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 a thing that's routinely adopted against all prisoners of war. And how did uh, prisoners of war keep in touch with their families at home? And how significant were these relationships in keeping prisoners going during the war? Well, it was, it was through letters, postcards and parcels that prisoners maintained a link with home. As soon as a serviceman was caught, he was meant to be given a postcard, um, which he could then send home, and this would inform the authorities and inform a man's family that he'd been captured. And on the postcard would also be a correspondence address so that people could then write to him and send him parcels. That post that a prisoner received was free from duty under the terms of international law, and the Germans set down regulations by which the prisoners could send home one postcard every week and two letters a month. They placed no limit 
on the amount of letters and parcels that prisoners could receive. All of that mail, however, would be subject to German censorship. Now, these links were hugely important to prisoners of war. In a material sense, the things that they received through those parcels were central to their well-being. And these parcels contained food and they also contained clothing. And they really were fundamental in keeping prisoners in a good state of health. One historian called Richard Van Emden describes the, the parcels they got as the gift of life. And I don't think that is an understatement. They were, they were key to prisoner of war well-being. Also, through the parcels, families and regiments could send personal items to prisoners. They could send them things like favourite brand, brands of cigarettes or a favourite item of clothing or even in the early days of the war, they could receive home baking and things like that. Later in the war, that parcel system becomes centralised by the British um, Red Cross and the Order of St John, and they send regular parcels um, to prisoners. So they become more anonymous and they lose this personal touch, but they're vital to prisoners' well-being. As well as the material value of these things, they also have a huge psychological value and emotional value because those letters allowed prisoners to keep in contact with home. They could continue to receive home world news. You know, they could keep up with local and family news. And in many ways, they could continue to perform civilian roles through these letters. You know, they could perform roles as fathers or as husbands writing to their wives or their children. They could also, to limited degrees, keep up to date with some of the war news. You know, there might be snippets of information about the war within a letter, or sometimes codes were adopted so that, that people could, could learn through coded information on in the war. And a central element of the receipt of the letters um, when a letter was coming from a loved one or coming from a regimental committee or even coming from the British Red Cross um, and ergo coming from the nation was that it provided a symbol to that captured man that he hadn't been forgotten. He'd not been forgotten by his family, hadn't been forgotten by his regiment or by his nation. And he remained valued. It was a physical symbol that he was still valued by these people. And that was immensely powerful to many of these men. And we know just how powerful it was because of the anguish that prisoners record when they weren't getting letters and parcels. And it, this caused them quite a, a considerable degree of ang anguish in which they feel, felt they'd been forgotten. They felt they'd been deserted. So we come to the armistice in 1918 and POWs are then repatriated back to the UK. What happens to them on their return? Well, yeah, as, as you suggest, Tom, when the armistice agreement is signed, it includes a clause about the repatriation of British prisoners. The repatriation process begins pretty much straight away and initial batches of um, returned British prisoners are arriving back within just 10 days after the armistice. Initially, these British prisoners were welcomed with much fanfare and euphoria. They're really caught up in the armistice celebrations that were taking place. So, for example, you know, ships would be coming back into the British ports and um, these would contain 
uh, repatriated prisoners, and they'd be greeted by massive crowds uh, who were cheering and waving flags. Um, often there'd be a band playing, and often there'd be a delegation to greet them, um, which might be formed by um, delegations of ex-servicemen and by local dignitaries, uh, such as the local mayor. In, on some occasions, there were even uh, royal uh, members of the royal family to greet prisoners. After they'd docked, all able-bodied prisoners would be sent to um, a distribution camp. So there was one in Ripon, for example, in North Yorkshire. And prisoners would there be medically examined. Um, they'd receive some pay, some back pay, and then they would be given periods of home leave. And this, of course, then led to sometimes quite emotional family reunions when the, the ex-prisoner finally arrived home. And at that stage, sometimes families could be, could be quite shocked with the physical appearance of the prisoners who returned. There's one prisoner who said how his, his grandmother and his mother were extremely shocked at the, the wastage of this man's body and they, they thought he looked like a famine victim. And very often prisoners themselves could be shocked by their own physical appearance when they caught a glimpse of the, themselves for the first time. Um, when, when they came home in mirrors and things like that. And that sort of tells a story that some British prisoners arrived back in very poor physical health and these men had to be immediately admitted to hospitals um, often being treated for the effects of malnutrition and this was the case for my great-grandfather for example he immediately is admitted to hospital in in scotland he arrived at leith in scotland and then later he's sent to hospital in Lancashire. And sadly, some British prisoners of war actually die in this repatriation stage. It could be quite a, a dangerous stage in the prisoner of war journey. Um, and they, they die upon repatriation or shortly after. You also see in the immediate po post-war period that there's a public clamour to hold the Germans to account over perceived prisoner mistreatment. You know, where there's cases of very weak prisoners or malnourished prisoners arriving home, this adds fuel to the fire. And these claims, these pushes culminate in the Leipzig war crime trials of 1921, um, which include indictments against German commandants and former German guards related to mistreatment of British prisoners. The ironic thing is, that by the time we get to 1921, public interest in the captivity experience is beginning to wane. And not only that, many prisoners are tending to keep quiet about their experiences. They're tending not to publicise their experiences. Perhaps, again, this can be linked to associated stigmas surrounding cap capture and that they continued to think that it was dishonourable and there was a certain shame in the fact that they'd allowed themselves to be caught. But the result of these things is that captivity starts to get relegated in terms of First World War experiences and it starts to get forgotten. And, and certainly if you think about all the commemoration and the memorialization that's taking place after the First World War, this tends to focus attention on the fallen, on the glorious dead. The prisoner of war doesn't easily fit within that narrative, within that commemorative framework, and therefore they tend to get sidelined in, in commemorative uh, frameworks after the war.
So was there any longer term impacts of captivity on those who returned? Yes, there was a considerable long term impact on the men themselves. Very often, captivity can be seen as the source of long term health issues for former prisoners. As I mentioned, there's evidence of premature death amongst prisoners of war immediately after the war. In the interwar period, there's also evidence of things like premature ageing as exhibited by former prisoners and ongoing health issues such as respiratory or digestional conditions, all of which are linked to malnutrition or poor conditions within the camps. And of course, there's also a psychological legacy amongst these men. There's certainly evidence of prisoners facing nightmares after the war, evidence of them Um, suffering from depression and mental breakdowns. And again, this tends to come through in extreme examples that you can find after the war, in in cases of ex-prisoner of war suicide attempts, actual suicides, also in in violence as displayed by prisoners. You know, there's there's accounts of murders, for example, in, in the press by former prisoners and their former experiences are as captives are sort of flagged up as explanatory factors for their actions. So there's there's this psychological toll. On a more mundane level, you also see psychological ticks, if you like, in everyday experiences for former prisoners. One of the most common was that former prisoners tended to be intolerant to any form of waste and certainly any form of waste of food. They couldn't bear to see any food wasted. And that's a direct legacy of the the straightened circumstances that they'd faced within the camps. So do you think there are any lessons that come from your study for for future policymakers and and leaders? Well, I certainly think that there are lessons in terms of attitudes, practices and, and processes of of repression and persecution that you see as a as a major theme in the 20th century. You know, very often these sorts of themes are, are studied in the Second World War and in the aftermath of the Second World War. But I think it's quite important to know that that certainly the seeds of these attitudes are being formed in the First World War and we see them playing out in how prisoners are treated and how other forms of captives like civilian internees and so on are treated. But I I, I like to think that one of the main lessons of my study is about the men who found themselves in this situation, you know, and how they they coped with it and how they tried to respond. So I like to think that there's lessons in, in the study in human terms, in terms of human resilience and the coping strategies that we see from people, even in the most extreme, con- even when faced with the most extreme. Con- and finally, Oliver, where can people get your book from? Um, well, the book is currently available in both hardback and ebook formats, um, and it can be bought directly from Cambridge University Press. So, if people go onto their website at cambridge.org and then search for British Prisoners of War, you'll be able to find it there. And also it's available from other online retailers such as Amazon, Blackwells, eBay, and so on. And again, if you just go onto these platforms and search for British Prisoners of War and my name, you'll be able to find it easily. Oliver, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, uh, Tom. 
You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.